This is Environmental Voices Rising, Women at the Mic, and I'm your host, Michael Crawford Zimring. Environmental Voices Rising is proud to amplify the voices of women environmental leaders who are bringing innovation and creativity to the challenges of climate change. This is a podcast about climate action and solutions, not doom and gloom. We are not planning on Mars as our next destination, because right here on planet Earth, there is a lot to be done. Women environmental leaders have been on the forefront for years. They know firsthand the effects of climate change, and they are committed to creating concrete solutions for a livable, sustainable, and equitable world for us all. We believe that media should be bringing you these stories with hope, inspiration, and an invitation to find your place in this endeavor that is changing the world. Please join us for today's conversation. Today, I'm really excited to welcome the Arctic Angels to Environmental Voices Rising Women at the Mic. The Arctic Angels are a youth-led intergenerational action network empowered by women-led global choices. The Angels are committed to bringing awareness about how the Arctic ice system is critical for global climate stability. The Arctic sea ice is essentially the Earth's cooling system, and the Angels are committed to protecting it because all the Earth's ecosystems are so interlinked that if one region fails, it can destabilize many of the others. So I am happy to welcome Ingrid, Beth, and Sirsha to share with us about youth activism and their stand to protect the Arctic. Hi, thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much for inviting us on. Very excited for today. Hi, yeah, very excited for the chat and looking forward to it. So Ingrid's going to get us started with a brief overview of the Arctic Angels, your work, how many people are involved, what you are up to. Ingrid. Yeah, like you mentioned, the Arctic Angels is a youth climate action network. It's powered by Global Choices, which is an NGO raising awareness about a phenomenon within the climate movement that we've coined the ice crisis. The ice crisis is essentially the rapid decline of sea ice and land ice that we're now experiencing as a result of warming temperatures and the climate crisis. The Arctic is warming somewhere between three to four times the global average, and in some areas up to seven times the global average, and this results in rapid ice melting, land ice in the Antarctic, and what's known as the third pole, which is ice stored in glaciers, and also sea ice melting which is what we find in the Arctic. And it's this Arctic sea ice melt that we at Global Choices and the Arctic Angels are particularly advocating for. Like you mentioned, we understand that the polar regions work as the world's air conditioning system. The albedo effect, which is that white surfaces reflect heat and dark surfaces absorb heat, is controlled by the planet's ice and sea ice extent in the Arctic is diminishing every year. And we're seeing some estimates that we'll have ice-free summers by 2030. We'll definitely have ice-free summers by 2050 if we don't take critical climate action now. So the Arctic sea ice is intrinsically linked to other Earth systems. We usually say what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic because not only is the Arctic a 
climate regulator, but it's also a climate tipping point, meaning that if the ice melts beyond a certain amount, it's unrecoverable. We usually like to say we can't plant ice because ice is not regenerative. We can't refreeze it, at least not without drastic climate measures. And this is what Global Choices is working on. We're calling for a 10-year moratorium or precautionary peace pause on exploitation of the area, the Central Arctic Ocean area in the Arctic. This is a high seas area beyond national jurisdiction, it's under no formal protection. The Arctic Ocean is actually the least protected ocean in the world. Even though we've just seen the UN High Seas Treaty passed, we still need uh, comprehensive protection against exploitation of this area. And so at Global Choices, we're working to raise awareness and then also establish this kind of formal protection of this area. And one way that we're raising awareness is through the Arctic Angels. Two of them are here. I'm also technically an Arctic Angel, but I also co-manage it with my colleague. We are 56 young women climate activists and leaders from around the world representing different areas. We, we come from or represent over 34 countries many on the front lines of climate of the climate crisis and we understand that even though we might live on one side of the world what happens on the other side of the world is still important to us and that's why we're raising um, awareness of what i've just explained as the ice crisis the arctic angels are also spearheading our grassroots campaign which is called the arctic ice force which is an initiative that brings the ice crisis an awareness of the ice crisis to the general public, which is a, a more grassroots campaign, which everyone can kind of sign up to and, and put their name towards encouraging adopting this 10-year moratorium. But the Arctic Angels is really at the community that's leading this conversation. And it is particularly of young women, because we understand the importance of young women as a voice in this movement. Women are not only on the front lines, but we also, we lead with what we call feminine leadership, which sees the earth as a whole, which sees every system interconnected and, and as a whole and understands the intrinsic connection that we all have to each other, but also to the planet. So for us, it's very natural that we create a space where young women get their voice uplifted, but also get to connect and bond and and truly experience the climate crisis as one community and not isolated from each other. We all kind of come together and, and share and create safe spaces. Thank you, Ingrid. That was a very clear explanation about the Arctic Angels and what you're what you're advocating for, especially about the condition of the sea ice, that we can't replant it, and once it's gone, it's gone. There was another key point which you clarified, and that's the interconnectedness of ecosystems. I think that's something that people still don't quite get, but I think that your generation understands in a very deep way that since global systems are interconnected, what happens in the Arctic does not stay in the Arctic, as you said, and that it will end up affecting many other global ecosystems, even in the global south and where we live. Arctic Angels, Sirsha, could you share with us your story? How did you get involved in climate activism and decide to join the Arctic Angels? Just over four years ago now, which is really weird, I started protesting, I started striking um, with Fridays for Future. Um, and so I founded 
uh, my local branch in the city nearest to me, which is uh, Limerick, um, when I was 13. Um, so since then, for me, it's definitely become kind of integral part of myself and the way that I think. So yeah, I have this interest and I have this I think for me, you know, before I got involved in the climate strikes, I sort of had this idea about politics that it was an an adult only thing, but I think for me the climate strikes really revealed that there is potential for young people to actually have influence. Um and so that was really, you know, enlightening for me. Um but then when I became involved, I sort of realized more still happening every day for me really how existential and and how urgent this crisis is and and how I think as you were saying like how interconnected it is with every other element it's not just environmental it's economic and social and political and for me more recently like that's been a big interest of mine like the economic side of things and how the climate crisis and and basically most inequalities around the world are really interconnected to one another and what we can do to restructure our our systems not just economic but with our mindsets and our political systems to kind of to be more aware of the fact that we don't have this absolutely you know inexhaustible source of natural resources i have some really good friends who are already in the arctic angels uh, and that was great but also you know meeting new people and connecting and uh, through international spaces is is always incredible so beth tell us your story how you got involved with Youth Activism for Climate Change and How You Became an Arctic Angel. Where are you calling in from? So she's calling in from Ireland. Where are you? So I'm from Dublin in Ireland, but I'm currently in Cambridge in the UK because I'm studying over here at the moment. So I had a pretty similar start to Saoirse. We both started in the Irish climate strikes about four years ago, which is actually how we know each other. So it's been like a while (laughs) of doing climate things together. But got started off with climate strikes in Dublin a little over four years ago as well. And from that kind of got involved in the, I suppose, advocating for systemic change on that kind of national level and looking at, I suppose, in particular what the Irish government was doing and how realistically that just wasn't enough. And that kind of took me towards being involved in a bit of work with um, second level students unions, kind of working on that, working on education um, and working on, I suppose, young people's engagement as well and having those spaces for young people to engage. Because I think that's something that's really critical is those adequate platforms being there. And so from that, I explored a little bit about how the law could be used to achieve climate justice. And that was something that, A, encouraged me to study law at university right now, but also B, has been very interesting as an Arctic angel looking at, as Ingrid mentioned, the moratorium, looking at how we can use international law to achieve climate justice. So I suppose that was something that really attracted me to the angels. And I think another thing that really attracted me to the angels was even from the start when I got involved with climate strikes and with the various other groups and things, one of the biggest things has been community because I find that throughout these four years there's been times where I've hit a wall and I really haven't known like what I'm doing where I'm going and kind of finding it quite hard I suppose to keep that momentum and to keep that kind of drive I guess and I think having a community you can rely on having a community that's regenerative that's supportive and that you can learn from one another is so important and I think that's one thing I've absolutely loved about the Arctic Angels is the support that comes from it and knowing that you can learn from others from their experiences and have that kind of support to keep going when you need it. This is really great. So collaboration is so important. And you've also had you've had a lot of experience with the climate strikes and Fridays for Future. I wanted to ask you about your experiences after like joining the Arctic Angels and attending a lot of these high-level meetings and climate negotiations. What was that like? Yeah, I suppose well 
Saoirse and I both attended, going way back, a Friday's Future Summit in Switzerland in 2019, which was kind of quite a good basis, I suppose, in exploring how to develop policy demands and work with others and kind of develop those demands. And then going forward in terms of meeting with stakeholders, um, personally, I was involved throughout um, kind of my end of secondary school education in working with the Irish Department for Education in terms of changing the strategy around education for sustainable development. Um, I also had some quite interesting experiences at COP26, which I'm so sure Saoirse can also add to um, in terms of COP experiences. But at COP or the Conference of the Parties 26 in Glasgow, we had some meetings with the Irish Climate Minister and various other officials like that. Um, and there's been a few different things with the Arctic Angels. Um, I was lucky enough to go to the Arctic Circle Assembly last October and November in Reykjavik. And a key thing we did there was really proposing this idea of a moratorium and developing it for policymakers and developing how it could be a feasible option through the international law treaties already in place. So a few different things, that's just kind of a sample throughout it. But I think going back to that idea of a platform, I think it's so crucial that we have those platforms for young people and for different voices to be heard. This was going over to Saoirse as well. So youth activism, especially with the climate strikes and Fridays for Future, seems to be bringing a lot more awareness about climate change. And you are actually getting experience attending these large climate and government meetings. And I wanted to ask you about your experiences and how you did or did not feel like you were being listened to or taken seriously as as youth. I think that can really vary from situation to situation. I think there's situations where there can be quite positive engagement. And I've had some times where I've come away feeling very heard and very listened to. But I think there are other alternative situations. Um, and I'm sure Sarah can add to this as well where often it feels like young people are kind of in the room as a way of saying, oh, look, we engage with young people and kind of tokenized rather than, so I suppose that kind of idea of being heard but not listened to. So good point. I'm also sure that you're gaining a lot of experience for yourselves dealing with these different attitudes. Saoirse, what was your experience being listened to or taken seriously as a youth leader? Well, as Beth was saying, we have had a lot of similar experiences because we are we have known each other for like, you know, I don't even know, four years, more than that at this point. I don't know. My memory is terrible with these things. But so, yeah, like I, I was a COP26 um, and that was certainly an experience. I think also I was also involved in the Irish Second Level Students Union advocating for second level students, but that was more so on the equality side of things. But also for me, you know, a big thing what uh, for me is is about climate justice and and again that kind of idea of how you know social justice and and climate action really tie into each other in many different ways and i was also recently selected for the uh, un secretary general's youth advisory group on climate change so that's exact literally you know advising the secretary general it's been like really weird but yeah i think again you know what you said before about like whether they listen i mean i think again like beth said it it does it does vary and i think there are times i would say generally no because i think most of the time it, it we are there as a token and and we are there for re-election purposes i was very proud of my with myself because i came up with a term it's like electoral ornament i was very proud of it with the secretary general i think it's uh, this is obviously a very new experience for me and and the difference there, I think, is is that the biggest issue is the bureaucracy of the UN actually hinders a lot of actual consultation. So even though the Secretary General might want to do certain things, it's either not within his power in order to approach him and, and in order to advise him, you, you know, we need to have like really solid recommendations. It's really difficult for me because I'm still in school and 
I don't have a degree and I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert in these things. But for me, I really want in this role to make sure that, that I come forward with like tangible things. Because I feel like there is a danger of if you say something too general, it's more likely than not that a politician will go, oh, yes, well, we'll do that and then not do anything. You know, it, it is difficult. There's a balance. And I think especially when, you know, I still can't vote as well. I'm, I'm 17. That's also really frustrating because it's like I have no leveraging power. So it is it's a combination of things. I think, to be honest, the best spaces where I have felt listened to is when protesting, because I think often when you meet leaders on their terms, when they do most of their not listening, if you know what I mean. So it has to kind of be either on equal terms or our terms, which, of course, feels quite uncomfortable to politicians. So it is it is a, a balance. And um, I think change is happening. It's just very slowly. And also, you know, I talked before about economics and, and there is this kind of unwillingness to look at our, the actual structural issues that are causing these crises. So, for example, um, I am a strong believer in, you know, like the post-growth movement, which discusses like the fact that the current kind of objective of increasing our GDP like exponentially every year is just impossible within our current planetary boundaries. And that's really frustrating because like in the UN, for example, one of their SDGs is literally decent work and economic growth. So there's very much like this narrative about economic growth being the only thing, and it's not. And so that's just one example of of many, many different things that they don't think about. I think learning about the economic impacts of climate change is so important because of the huge impacts that it can have on risks and growth, and that you'll find other ways to like look at growth and tell that story. And speaking of impacts, I wanted to go back to the Arctic Angels, specifically to a point on your website, which is about the global commons, about the, the significance that managing the Arctic ice and its importance to the global commons, the importance of preserving the Arctic ice instead of just exploiting it. Tell us, how, how would you explain the global commons and, and what does that mean to you? If I can just say very quickly, I'm coming at it from a very economic standpoint again. Actually, you know, one of the, the foundations of our current exploitative capitalist system was sort of is very history. Going back to the end of the feudal age, a lot of the, the former serfs, they founded commons and they were essentially pieces of land that were collectively farmed and that the benefit was collectively gained from. So it's like everyone worked and everyone gained benefit from it. Um, but obviously, there was this attitude from wealthy people that that wasn't right, and they wanted wealth. So this whole accumulation of wealth began, and that's when we kind of had, a, you know, correlates with the Industrial Revolution, and it still continues to this day. Uh, in fact, the whole idea of like trickle-down economics and all this stuff is completely impossible because it's all about wealth accumulation. And I think in terms of the Arctic, it is something that we all benefit from, not from choice, but because that's the way our planetary systems work. And that I think there's also the element of like, if it is destroyed, if we degrade it, we will all, you know, have to deal with that. We will all have to deal with the effects of that. It's not just, it's not like, I mean, there isn't anything that is a localized issue, but especially with the Arctic, it's so important to our planetary systems it's like the Amazon rainforest. 
I don't know if it's more or less important, but it, it is really vital to the way that our planet works. And, and if it fails, we will all fail. That sounds really morbid, but yeah. right, right. No, but it is the sense of, of commons. It is something that we all share and that we share globally. The effects of what is happening in the Arctic is what we will share all globally. That's it. So Beth, what is your take on how do you share what the global commons is and how important it is to all of us? Yeah, I mean, I think the Arctic as a global commons in terms of what that means, I suppose, really depends from which viewpoint you're looking at it, because you could be kind of similarly to those wealthy landowners in the feudal context that Saoirse was talking about. You could be one of the private companies or state actors who's currently seeking to basically capitalize on this remaining global commons and exploit it for your own purposes, seeking to drill it and actually seeing the ice melting as an opportunity for shipping pathways and essentially wanting to exploit what is common to the entire world for the benefit of a very small group of people and putting short-term profit above long-term sustainability and in fact the survival of our species as a whole. Uh, that's one option. Uh, the other and more sensible option that we put forward and the option that is in fact the only one that guarantees survival on the planet and survival of the Earth's ecosystem as we know it, is to acknowledge that this is, a, this is as Sirius said, a commons that, upon which we all depend. And that for it to be a global commons, right now the Central Arctic is outside of any country's jurisdiction. It is the high seas, it is the commons of the world. So therefore, we all have a duty to protect it. And right now the global community is unfortunately failing in that. And instead of seeing it as this thing to be protected from which we all benefit similarly to those comments that Saoirse talked about that the entire world can grow, can benefit from and um, enjoy. Instead, currently we are seeing people seeking to profit off it. So we're really saying, listen, this is the commons of the world. We need to protect it and we need to take responsibility for it as a global community. Thank you. So well said, both of you. I, I like that you pointed out again that the Arctic is of global, global importance to all of us and it's not just someplace far away up north. So going forward, I want to ask you about the Arctic Angels and what you're what you're up to. What are your plans for attending meetings, or how you uh, what your leadership is going to look like going forward? Maybe Ingrid could help us out there. Yeah, sure, I can speak to it. We do organize around major climate events, um, things like COP, the ACAs, the Arctic Circle Assembly, that is um, New York Climate Week, etc. But for us, we do it in a very organic, natural way. We build community internally, and then we take that message externally where people are already engaged in speaking. So in their local communities, if they're participating in, say, strikes, we do also facilitate opportunities for Arctic Angels to attend conferences where possible to bring the, the message forward. But a lot of the work is done internally, building confidence, building leadership. This year, we are really excited that we'll be able to provide Arctic Angels with more whole systems training and workshops. We're doing a few workshops in person this year, bringing that kind of virtual community back in person. So the Arctic Angels were, the, the community and the network was founded in 2018, but it rapidly grew over the pandemic. I think that's something that we all felt in kind of the youth space is that we had already been utilizing online communities, but it was so much more, so much easier when we were all convening online to really take advantage of the people that were already using those spaces. So we, we saw our network kind of grow and it's been online for a while, but what we want to do is really build international community 
where people can share in a way that feels very organic. We're building a safe space. We're building a learning platform. And then we are, like, like I was saying in my introduction, we're kind of hoping to spearhead not only implementing the moratorium, which is a more higher level stakeholder policy kind of negotiation, but we're also doing more public facing campaigns. So we're doing properly launching the Arctic Ice Force this year, which the Arctic Angels will help push for. But this is a network that's open to everyone, which We'll use this space to kind of try to bring the ice crisis and the polar crisis to the forefront of the global climate agenda and also into public consciousness, as we feel like that's, it's usually a, a point in which people come into climate education more, you know, you learn about the polar bears and you learn about the ice melting and then we kind of diverge and we never really come back to it. So it's very important for us that we keep speaking about the coast, but also really invest in the Arctic angels as young climate leaders, we really do believe that all of the Arctic angels, including Beth and Zirsha, are going to be the, the leaders of tomorrow. They're going to be in leadership positions. They are incredibly fierce. They're incredibly powerful. They are inspirational change makers beyond any other like community that I have ever come across. And just by investing in them, that we know that we're investing in the kind of in the climate policy making of the future. So that's our priority. Yes, I think you're very spot on with that. And going forward, you are just gaining more and more experience. You are already, all of you, very articulate youth leaders now. Tell us about your desires and your plans for the future and what areas do you think you're going to be focusing on? I mean, I'm in my second year of university, so that's the big question, isn't it? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yes. Yes, graduation is next June, so that is definitely coming up soon. I think that's something that I think I'm personally still figuring out. I think I know that I'm quite interested in the legal side of things. So I'm studying law at the moment and I'm quite interested in how we use law, not just in terms of obviously on one hand, say changing climate plans, changing climate policies. We've done that very successfully in Ireland with, some, with climate cases in the past, but also looking at human rights law. Could you give us an example? That would be really great. Of course, yeah. So back in 2019, um, Climate Case Ireland took a case to the Irish High Court challenging the climate action plan that was in place at the time and it went all the way up to the Supreme Court and when I was I would have been about 17 or 18 at the time I can't remember but 17 at the time I went to the Supreme Court hearing and kind of just sat in on it helped them write articles explaining it and stuff like that so I was involved with the case at that point and I remember that as a key turning point for me because the Supreme Court held that the plans that the government had in place were actually in violation of the Climate Act so they had to completely overturn their plans and they had to overturn Ireland's climate legislation. And that was really a watershed moment. And that case has gone on to be used as precedent in the UK and around the EU, which is really exciting. And I suppose seeing the practical and tangible effect that the law can have. And outside of that context, well, just human rights and social justice, because we know it's also connected. I suppose advocating for people in that way. And I think going forth from that into policy creation and stuff, I think it's really important to look at entire system changing. And I think at the moment, our politics lacks I suppose, a vision for what the future can look like if we change our systems at the moment. And I think we really need to fundamentally change the way we do politics and change the way we do policy and law as a whole. So hopefully something in that area. But I don't know what specifically. So we'll figure that out. We'll figure out <laughs> that. Yeah. No, great. Thank you. Zirsa, what are you working on? I think I said before, but I'm, I'm currently in my last year of school. So again, very topical. Um, but I'm, I'm planning to take a gap year next year because I the idea of going straight from like academic intensity to another form of academic intensity 
it's really actually terrifying for me. So I'm just hoping to do some traveling and, and keep working on, on different things. But after that, I would really like to study, you know, something along the lines of um, politics and sociology, uh, maybe economics. But the issue is with economics is uh, an extremely mathematical subject at university, something that I absolutely despise. So I'm hoping maybe what I can do is like beg my tutor or whoever, I don't know, to be like, can I just sit on one module? So I don't know. I'll figure it out. I think for me, you know, like with economics, even though I really don't love it, as in the the theory, it's classical economics is is absolutely mind numbing. I think it's really important for people who who have a kind of sociological and politically mindset to study economics, because unfortunately, the majority of people who do study economics tend to be the ones who uphold neoliberal policies and who uphold very specific mindsets that are taught to them in the course. So I think it's really important to, for like critically minded people to study economics. And for me, you know, the reason why that's a big thing is um, I recently read Jason Hickel's book, Less is More, and Kate Rayworth's book, Donut Economics. And that for me, I also study economics at school, but um, that for me was like a really big, as Beth said, watershed moment, because I was like, yeah, okay, actually, if you think about it, measuring the amount of satisfaction derived from the purchasing of a good as like theor- like as pure immutable like law is really weird so that was a big thing for me the kind of absurdity and then as somebody who's really interested in politics to notice the kind of economic jargon that is used to justify certain decisions like for example we have a housing crisis here in Ireland and um during the pandemic, there was a, a ban on any evictions. And the argument to end that ban was that, oh, we will increase the supply of housing, which is, again, an example of economic jargon, because that's completely not true. So I think for me, that's that's really interesting to kind of see the world, see that there is like very specific language being used to kind of mystify people and language that that really it is deliberately written that way. I think there's the economist um I can't remember his name. I think he he studied or he he's a lecturer or something. I can't remember his name. It's really bad. Um, but he one of this this economist said that basically economic language has now become like the aristocratic French of feudal France in that they look down on the peasants who can't speak their specific version of French and they go, oh, they're uneducated. When in reality, it's just a way to separate classes and a way to increase inequality and a way to kind of mystify the lower classes from what the wealthy people are actually doing so for me that w- that was really interesting hearing that yeah I'm not sure what I would do with that because I do think politics and and especially being in politics as a politician or a diplomat is also something that doesn't necessarily appeal to me so I'm not exactly sure where I'll go with that but I think for me really studying the theory and understanding exactly why we are the way we are as a global kind of society and the the other potential alternatives that we have that are kind of ignored. That's sort of something I'm really interested in. But at the moment, my focus is my exams. But no, I think I think you have you have a good point there of like understanding the economics and being able to clarify that in a way that makes it accessible to be able to understand what this whole exploitation ex- and extraction, this mindset of that's actually created the situation that we're in now. I mean, I think that's really 
finding the story in that and being able to explain that, not necessarily having to like crunch the numbers, but there's a story behind that. And I think that's a good leverage point that you might have for that. So who's been to the Arctic? Have you all been to the Arctic? Interestingly enough, I, I was born in the Arctic. I'm Norwegian and Swedish. I just live in, in England in the UK because I studied here for university and I stayed after. I'm born in a small town in Norway called Shirkines. It's right about where Norway borders Russia, so very much in the high Arctic. So getting to work with the Arctic Angels and something Arctic related, it's not necessarily what I saw myself doing. I studied conservation and I was working with rainforest conservation before I kind of got into this space. But it feels very much a return to form or a return to my kind of understanding of nature connectedness, where that comes from, um, because it is really growing up in the Arctic and being Arctic born that I feel has instilled some of that in me. Although I don't think that we're doing obviously enough to protect and kind of give rights to indigenous people that live in the Arctic. Uh, I also was lucky enough to go to Greenland last year. I joined something called Unleash, which is a program that brings youth together to create innovative solutions for the SDGs. And they did a local Unleash program for Arctic youth in Greenland, which was also a transformative experience, understanding what is really happening in the Arctic in a different part of the Arctic that I've never been. And it's actually quite worrying. I, I think Beth spoke about a little bit about this earlier, but there's really something about this pristine environment that attracts exploitation. We've kind of degraded so much of the world already that the only land that's left unexplored is that of the deep sea and also that of the land that's underneath where ice is melting. So glacier melt in Greenland is really contributing to a whole lot of land exploitation and obviously indigenous land exploitation. People are wanting to mine for rare minerals that are happening, that are they are finding now underneath the, the glacier. So they're wanting to heat up and melt the glaciers faster so that they can get to the land faster and get to degrade it. And the same is happening in the Arctic Sea. We're seeing the Arctic is melting, the ice is breaking up. So we are quick to want to put a shipping route straight through Russia to China. Deep seabed mining as well, once the ice melts, it's very lucrative and attractive. So there's something about, for me, being able to now work in Arctic protection, that, that's a very full circle moment, I guess. So I feel very lucky with that. So I wish you the best with your exams and your work going forward. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for joining us today. We invite you to follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at eVoices Rising. Share this podcast. Subscribe on our website, eVoicesRising.com. We are now a 501c3 and gratefully accept your donations. We have a library of resources for you on our website so that you can dig into environmental issues yourself. Catherine Hayhoe, environmental scientist, says, just start by doing something, anything, and then talk about it. Talk about how it matters. You can connect the dots with friends and family and make a difference. Stay tuned for more episodes. Until next time. <laughs>